0: Scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, it's good to be with you today. After taking last week off to hear from Pastor Daniel, we're jumping back into our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. And we've been looking at how Jesus and the Holy Spirit through the church turned the world upside down in the first century which is something that he has continued to do in every century since, which has implications for us in the 21st century. And so far in Acts, we've looked at Jesus' ascension. We've looked at the Holy Spirit's descention, We've looked at the sermon that Peter, Peter preached at Pentecost, where he witnessed to who exactly Jesus is. And then we looked at uh, the characteristics of this new community forming, the church. Today, we're going to be looking at a story from Acts 3 about the first miracle done through the church Uh, and what that means for us as we think about miracles in general. Uh, This story about the first miracle done through the church, done through the apostles, actually has a lot to say about all miracles. And so, as we look more closely at Acts 3 and the subject of miracles, we will have three points sovereignty, salvation, and restoration. And so let's begin with our first point, sovereignty. When my wife Holly was born as a little newborn baby, she had an enlarged liver and an enlarged spleen. And it was really concerning to doctors, uh, so much so that they transferred her to a bigger hospital. And when she got there, they ran some tests, and they realized that they needed to transfer her again to an even bigger hospital to figure out what was wrong with her. And so they sent her in an ambulance to this even bigger hospital, and the doctors there also could not figure out what the problem was. She still had an enlarged liver and enlarged spleen. Uh, The numbers from the tests that they were running were not looking good, and doctors were growing more and more concerned that she might not survive, or at the very least that she would be plagued with considerable health problems. So while she was there, the pastor from Holly's parents' church came and uh, came to the hospital, and he prayed for her. And when he was praying, Holly's mom recalls, there was a moment where it got very quiet in the hospital. You know, in general, hospitals are kind of noisy places, especially where babies are, but when the pastor was praying, it got quiet. The next morning, the doctors checked on Holly. They ran some tests, and her numbers were good. They checked her liver and spleen, and they were normal-sized. And the doctors couldn't explain it. They didn't know why the numbers were good again. They didn't know why her liver and spleen had returned to normal size. The only explanation that they could offer was that it was a miracle. Our passage today contains the first miracle done by the church, done by the apostles. And so after, you know, Jesus had ascended, that's when this miracle happened, Peter and John, two apostles, were going to the temple, and there was a man who had been lame from birth. He couldn't walk, and he was at the gate asking for alms. You know, he was asking for money or food. And Peter and John looked at him, and they asked the man to look back at at them, and he did, expecting that he was going to receive some money or receive some food. But what he got was far better. Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately, the man's feet and ankles were healed. They were made strong, and he got up. He stood. He walked. He leaped, even. It was a miracle. He had been healed. What do you think of these two stories of miracles, Holly's story and uh, the man who was lame? Are you inclined to believe that they're true? Do you think that neither of them are true? Do you think that Peter and John's story is true, but maybe Holly's isn't? Or maybe you think Holly's story is true, but there must be some sort of explanation beyond simply it was a miracle. Wherever you're at, it's totally fine. To be honest, I'm the type of person who might be a little bit cynical toward Holly's story if I didn't know and trust the people who told it to me. But I think we all need to slow down and carefully examine what exactly miracles are. How should we, as Bible believing Christians, even define what a miracle is? How would you define the word miracle? This is actually something that theologians have wrestled with because the definition of a miracle isn't exactly straightforward. And the reason is because God is sovereign. That's why this point is about sovereignty. God is sovereign. God is in total control of everything. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, all of creation, every creature, all their actions. God in his sovereignty, in his providence, in his holiness, in his wisdom, in his power, he's controlling it all. God is sovereign. And that sort of complicates how we would define what a miracle is, right? Let me explain you might try and say that a miracle is when God directly intervenes in our world. Divine intervention, if you will, or an act of God, as your insurance policy might call it. But the problem is, a term like divine intervention or act of God suggests that God is not constantly intervening, that God is not constantly acting, preserving, and governing our world. You know, Divine intervention makes it seem like God created everything. He just got the globe spinning like a basketball on his fingertip, and then he left it spinning. And then from time to time, he comes back to make sure things don't go off the rails. But that's not true. He didn't create the world and then step away. God is intimately involved in this world. He's sovereign over everything that happens. He created it all from nothing. He designed how it would work, and he sustains it every single millisecond. Stuff that's medically and scientifically explainable and stuff there's no explanation for. God is doing it all. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds all things together. And so a miracle is not a divine intervention because God is always intervening, if you will. And so if a miracle isn't divine intervention because God is always active in our world, is it better than to say that everything is a miracle? Everything is an act of God, and therefore everything is miraculous. There is something to this idea because in a very real sense, Life and creation and this world are miraculous. We can't explain it other than to explain that God made it all happen. There's no how-to guide for creation. God created it from nothing and daily preserves and governs it. And we can't get behind or under or beyond it to explain it. But the downside of defining miracle this way is that if everything is a miracle, then nothing is a miracle. The word essentially becomes meaningless. And clearly, Scripture has some sort of category for miracles. Although I will say, there's actually not a one-for-one word for miracle in Scripture. I mean, even in our text today, there's actually no word in it that's translated miracle. Uh, Miracle is kind of a broad concept that arose later that encompasses a few different things that happen in Scripture. It's a more modern word than a biblical word. But that's not to say that miracles aren't biblical. They are. Uh, We can look at an earlier passage in Acts, in fact, to get a good understanding. In Acts 2.22, this was a verse from Peter's speech at Pentecost. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, and listen here, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Mighty works, wonders, Signs. These are the kinds of words that we might group all together as miracles. And so again, there's clearly some biblical category for a miracle that isn't so narrow so as to be understood as divine intervention, because God is always intimately involved, but it's also not so broad so as to be understood as everything that happens. There truly are miracles. There are mighty works. There are wonders. There are signs. And so maybe the best way to define a miracle is something like an extraordinary manifestation of God's sovereignty or an exceptional manifestation of God's sovereignty, something that communicates that God is sovereign over all things, miracle and non miracle alike, something that also communicates that there are normal and common ways that God's sovereignty manifests itself, like planes being able to fly or medicine healing diseases. And there are abnormal and uncommon ways that God's sovereignty manifests itself, like a newborn's liver and spleen shrinking down to normal size, or a lame man getting up, walking, and leaping. Miracles are extraordinary manifestations of God's sovereignty. And that gets at one of the functions of miracles, what one of the functions of miracles is. Miracles point us to God. Miracles point us to God's sovereignty. Miracles remind us of God's sovereignty, because God is sovereign all the time, but we forget God's sovereignty. We don't live all the time like God is sovereign, and so miracles remind us of God's sovereignty, and here's how that might work. You know, remember those three things from Acts two twenty two: mighty works, wonders, and signs, and so we witness or hear about something amazing, a mighty work Of God and that causes us to experience awe and wonder and that wonder sinks in and captures our hearts and minds and it becomes a sign a a sign that points us to God that's what signs do right they point somewhere else just like a sign on the highway doesn't point to itself it points somewhere else it says Lake Tahoe 200 miles that way miracles mighty works they cause us to experience wonder and they point us elsewhere. They point to our sovereign God who is with you always, intimately involved in every aspect of our life. And look, the, the question that everyone wonders about miracles is do they still happen today? And the answer is yes, they do. Miracles happen because God is sovereign and it may please Him to act miraculously. so you can feel total freedom to ask God for a miracle, to pray for miracles. God is sovereign, and so he's the perfect person to ask for a miracle. But at the end of the day, it's what he chooses to do. It's his sovereignty, not our sovereignty, And so we also must be careful to never assume that we can say the right prayer or mean it enough or have enough faith and then somehow put God in our debt so that he owes us a miracle or so that he has no choice but to do a miracle. That's not how sovereignty works. God is sovereign, and so he does miracles when he wills to do a miracle, not when we will for him to do a miracle. But again, because he is sovereign, you can ask him. Let him know what miracles you would like to see done. The nature of prayer is mysterious like that. God might just will for a miracle to be done through you asking him for one. And so pray, ask, pray for miracles knowing that you're talking to the God who rules all of creation, who's sovereign over everything. Miracles are a grace to us because we forget That god is sovereign and with us in every single moment and miracles remind us look if even if 50 years from now we learn something about enlarged livers and spleens and newborns that explains what happened to holly it doesn't change god's sovereignty one bit it doesn't change god's grace in that story one bit That story made everyone who heard the mighty work of God experience tremendous wonder and it was a sign that pointed them to God and his sovereignty, which is always the right response, to be pointed to God. That's one of the main purposes of miracles, to have our hearts pointed to our sovereign God. But That's not the only function of miracles. That's not the only thing that miracles do. They point to God's sovereignty, but they also point to God's salvation and to God's restoration. And so we're going to look at each of these over the next two points. And so let's look now at salvation. Miracles point us to God's salvation. There's a story from Luke chapter 5 about Jesus healing a paralyzed man. Jesus is teaching in a house. There are Pharisees and teachers of the law there who had come from all over And some men bring a paralyzed man to the house. They're carrying him on a bed and want to lay him down before Jesus so that he can heal him. But it's so crowded in the house that they can't get in. And so what do they do? They go onto the roof and lower the man down through the tiles right in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Does he heal the man? No. Not yet, at least. Jesus says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven you, which was shocking on several levels. I mean, right away the Pharisees called Jesus a blasphemer because God alone can forgive sins. And, you know, spoiler alert, Jesus is claiming to be God and is God. But on another level, imagine you were the man himself or the friends who brought him. You would be like, forgiveness is great and all, but Read the room, Jesus. I have a much more important need right now than forgiveness. I need healing. But it's not a more pressing need. Look how Jesus responds. He says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? So that you all may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately the man rose up, picked up his bed, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized all the people there. They glorified God. They were filled with awe. They were saying, we have seen an extraordinary thing today. Most important need that that man had, that anyone has, is the forgiveness of sins, salvation. Salvation. Jesus did heal him. Jesus did tell him to get up and walk, but it was so that everyone would know that Jesus did, in fact, have the authority to forgive sins. That uh, Salvation was found in Jesus. That miracle and all miracles point to the forgiveness of sins. Miracles point to salvation. In our Acts passage, we see something similar. After Peter and John heal the man, it says in verses 10 through 11, And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And so what does Peter do? He's just healed this man, and suddenly everyone is paying attention to him. And so what does Peter do? He explains something very similar to his previous speech from Acts 2. Peter says, Men of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified Jesus And yet you delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate. You denied the Holy and Righteous One. And you traded him for a murderer. You crucified Jesus, the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We all witnessed it. And it's Jesus' name, by faith in Jesus' name, that this man who once was lame has become strong and been given perfect health. And so what should you do now? Repent. Repent. Turn back so that your sins may be blotted out, so that your sins may be forgiven. Peter explains that the healing of the man lame from birth pointed to repentance, to faith. It was a miracle that pointed to the forgiveness of sins, to salvation. All miracles really point to salvation in one way or another. Jesus and Luke and Peter here in Acts are essentially both saying, when you witness or hear of a healing, think about the forgiveness of sins. Think about faith and repentance. Think about salvation. Do you see the connection between miracles and salvation? And when I say salvation, I really mean the big picture. You know, both the moment you're saved, when you profess faith and come to Christ for the first time, and I also mean every day after that. Your sanctification, the living out of your salvation, living as a saved person, becoming who God made you to be, dying more and more to sin, living more and more to righteousness. There's a connection between miracles and a holistic understanding of your salvation, day one and every day after. So again, you see the connection between miracles and salvation. You see, all of your bodies. Capacities, all of your senses, they can be metaphors for spiritual realities. You know, take the lame man walking in our passage. This is a pretty common spiritual metaphor, right? Walking. How is your walk with God? Are you walking with God? Or are you paralyzed? Did you come to Jesus this morning? Or does someone else have to carry you here? Are you leaping for joy in God's presence? Or are you lame? spiritually, kept outside the gate of God's presence. Do you get it? You know, some of you are spiritually paralyzed, spiritually lame, spiritually limping at best, and it's like being stuck outside the temple away from God's presence. And so you need to ask God for a miracle. You need a miracle within you. You need him to heal your paralysis so that you can walk with him again, or maybe walk with him for the first time. You need him to heal your lameness so that you can leap for joy again, or maybe leap for joy for the first time. What miracle do you need God to do within you? What part of God's holistic salvation are you lacking? What miracle do you need? Are you blind, spiritually blind? I've been coming and coming to church, but I just don't see it. What do all these people see that I don't see? Clearly they see something, but I just don't see it. God, I'm in the dark. What do they see about you? What do they see about Jesus? What do they see about themselves? What do they see about reality, about the future, that I just don't see? Open my eyes, God. I am blind. I need a miracle. I want to see. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not blind. Maybe you're deaf, spiritually deaf. Why can't I hear you, God? I don't know what you're saying to me, and when I can't hear you, I worry that means you can't hear me, and I desperately want to hear you. I need to hear you say you love me. I need to be comforted by your words. I need to hear that you're well pleased with me. I need to hear what you're calling me to in this life. I am deaf, God. I need a miracle. I want to hear you, or are you mute? spiritually mute. I can't pray, God. I can't talk to you. When others pray, I stay silent. When others sing praises, my mouth stays shut. When I should apologize and repent, I clench my fists and double down. When I should confront someone, I pretend that everything is fine. When I could encourage someone, I say nothing. When I could share the good news of your gospel with someone who doesn't know you, I keep that gift to myself. I am mute, God, I need a miracle. I want to start talking. What miracle do you need God to do within you? What of his salvific work in you do you need him to bring about? Miracles point to spiritual realities. They point to our salvation, the whole saving work, not just day one of your salvation, but every day of your salvation, your eternal life. Miracles point to spiritual realities, to salvation. But miracles aren't only spiritual. They're not less than spiritual, but they are more than spiritual. And that takes us to our final point, restoration. Miracles point to God's restoration. I was watching the movie La La Land recently, uh, and it's a fantastic movie, awesome soundtrack. And in the movie, there are two main characters, Mia, who's played by Emma Stone, and Seb, who's played by Ryan Gosling. And Mia is an actress, and Seb is a jazz pianist, and they're both living in Los Angeles. And they meet, and they start to fall in love, and they begin supporting and encouraging one another in their respective craft. Mia's been auditioning for all these roles and hopes to make it big. Seb loves jazz. He loves the history of jazz, and he hopes to open his own jazz club one day. And in one scene, they're in a jazz club, and Seb is explaining to Mia how exciting jazz is because a major component of jazz is improvisation. You know, a song may start in one place, but because of this expectation for improv in the middle, you have no idea where the song is going to end. In a a single moment, one musician could totally transform the rest of the song. And you realize later uh, in the movie that that's a metaphor for the plot of the entire movie because there comes a moment where Seb and Mia make an improvised decision that changes the rest of the movie. Mia has an opportunity to go to Paris to work on her first major role as an actress, and they can either both go together to Paris, and Seb would have to give up his dream of opening a jazz club, or they can both stay in Los Angeles and Mia give up her dream, or, and what they ultimately end up deciding, she can go and he can stay. And that moment, that decision, that improvisation is ultimately what leads to the end of their little love story. They never get back together. The next scene in the movie takes place five years later. And Mia is a famous actress, just like she's always dreamed. And she's married to some other guy, and they have a daughter together. And Mia and her husband, by chance, walk into a jazz club, and it's Seb's club. He's accomplished his dream also. And uh, while Seb is on stage, he looks out into the crowd and he makes eye contact with Mia. And he looks so sad. He looks full of regret. And he slowly walks over to the piano. It gets dark. And he begins to play. And it's the song that he was playing when he first met Mia. And the song, as the song plays, the scene essentially transforms into a big what if. What if they had not chosen to go their separate ways? What if he had chosen to love her more than his jazz music? What if he had chosen to go with her to Paris? And so there's this montage of them going to Paris together, eventually getting married, having a baby, starting their life together, and it ends with the two of them sitting together in that same jazz club. But they're in the crowd, and they're watching someone else play on stage. But Seb has a smile on his face not regret. And he leans over and kisses Mia. What if? Could he have had everything that he's now lost? Do you ever feel like that? Asking yourself, what if? Longing to have back something that you've lost? Or just to have something at all that you've never had but always desired? Maybe you look at where you're at today, you, you look at your circumstances, and you think about some decision from your past, some improv you made, and you wonder, would I like where I am better today if I had made a different decision back then? Or maybe worse. Maybe it wasn't your decision. Maybe it wasn't your improv that changed everything. Maybe it was somebody else's. Maybe it was somebody else's decision forced upon you that changed everything for you. You ever wonder what it would be like if that had never happened? Do you long for that to have never happened? Maybe it's not even tied to anyone's decision, yours or otherwise. It just is what it is. Some thorn in your side from life in a fallen world, something you suffer from that makes you wonder, what could my life have been like if I didn't have to deal with this, this thorn in my side, if I didn't suffer in this way? What would life be like? What if the things you've lost, or the things you lacked could be restored to you. Miracles say that they can. That's part of the Christian hope, that God intends to redeem and restore all things, to take the things that are wrong now and make them how they were always supposed to be. In our passage, in verses 19 through 21, Peter says, "'Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out,' that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, that times of refreshing may come until the time of restoring all things, refreshing, restoration. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound like just what you're looking for. Don't you long for refreshing. Don't you long for restoration. That's the final thing that miracles point to, refreshing, restoration, God's promise to restore all things. Have you ever noticed that the mighty works, the wonders, the signs, the miracles done by Jesus and the apostles, they were always alleviating suffering or trouble of some kind. They never do miracles just to do miracles. They weren't simply about showing power. I mean, if that's all Jesus wanted to do, he could just go around levitating all the time or doing magic tricks. But that's not the kind of miracles that Jesus actually did. The miracles that Jesus did were healings. When Jesus did a miracle, he was refreshing someone. He was restoring someone. He would tell the lame to walk. He would tell the blind to open their eyes. He would tell the deaf to listen. He would tell the dead to come out of their tombs. Jesus' miracles were always acts of restoration, taking things that had gone wrong, that had been lost, and bringing them back, making them right again. Because God didn't invent blindness. God didn't invent deafness. God didn't make people lame or paralyzed. God didn't design babies to have enlarged livers and spleens. God didn't invent chronic pain. God didn't make mental illness. God didn't create addiction. He didn't create suffering. He didn't create death, all the things we hate. God didn't design those. Those things are profoundly unnatural. They're only a result of our human rebellion, which brought the fall of all creation, the the fall that infected and cursed our creation. But you see, we're so used to this fallen and broken world that We've actually started to call what's wrong with it, natural. There can be a way of talking about miracles as if they go against the so-called laws of nature. You know, normally, by the laws of nature, blind people don't have their sight restored, deaf people don't have their hearing restored, dead people don't have their life restored, and so on. So when we hear of a miracle happening, if someone miraculously gets their sight back, if someone miraculously gets their hearing back, if someone miraculously raises from the dead, we think, That's a suspension of the laws of nature. That's often how we think of miracles, suspensions of the laws of nature, a suspension of the natural order of things. But that's backwards. Miracles are not suspensions of the natural order. Miracles are restorations of the natural order. Miracles are restorations of how things were supposed to be. They're recreations, you could say. They're God making this world natural again. Jesus telling the paralyzed man to get up and walk is the most natural thing that's ever happened. His paralysis was unnatural. His walking was natural. Miracles point to restoration. The grace of miracles restores nature. The grace of miracle recreates. Take John 9. Have you ever heard the story of Jesus healing the blind man by spitting on the ground and making mud with his saliva and then spreading it on the man's eyes? It's a pretty weird story, right? Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus spit on the ground? Well, do you remember how God created Adam in Genesis 2? Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground. Humans were created out of the dust of the ground, and so when Jesus spits on the ground to make mud, he's creating man again from the dust of the ground. It's a recreation story. It's a restoration story. More than just healing this man's sight, it's almost better to think of it as recreating his eyes anew. He's creating the eyes of this man so that He never needs glasses, so he'll always be able to see the way eyes were always supposed to be. You see, miracles are God's promises to his people that one day things are going to be put right again. They're going to be the way they were always supposed to be, the way that he created them to be. No more pain, no more regrets, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death. Because of God's miracles, We don't have to look back at our lives in despair. We can look forward in hope. We don't have to look back and ask, what if? We can look forward and say, I can't wait. What can't you wait for God to restore? We can look forward to it in hope, to the new creation, the recreation, the new heavens, the new earth, the restoration to God restoring all things to how they were always meant to be. That's what miracles are about. This fallen world, everything you've lost, everything you lack being restored to you. Let me close with this. How does this restoration come about? Who brings it about? Jesus does because he loves you he brings about restoration at great cost to himself, the greatest cost. It didn't cost you or me, but it did cost him, and that's how restoration always works. Even in La La Land, the the vision of a restored relationship that Seb has, it would have come at a cost. It would have cost Seb his dream. It would not have been free, but it would have been worth it, and Mia would have always known for sure that he loved her because of what the restoration of the relationship cost him. You know, in the Bible, it's amazing how closely miracles are associated with costs. They're often closely associated with danger. You know, in the very next chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are going to get thrown in prison, in large part because of the miracle that they've just performed. That miracle cost them. Or take John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The religious leaders who witness it, do you know what they say? We have to kill him now. You know, miracles often invite cost. They invite danger because miracles threaten the power structures of this fallen world. You know what the greatest miracle was? The greatest miracle of all time. Do you know what it was? The incarnation that God became a man. He came to earth. And why did he do that? Why did Jesus come? To seek and save that which had been lost. To restore That's the biggest miracle of all, that God and man in one person, Jesus, came to earth to seek and save what was lost, to restore it, to save it. That's a miracle. And do you know what the cost of that miracle was? Do you know what the danger of that miracle was? Do you know what the risk of the incarnation was? By taking on flesh, Jesus made himself vulnerable. He made himself weak. He made himself killable. In fact, he intended to to be killed. It cost him to restore, but it was worth it. It was worth it to get you, to restore you, to restore to you all the things you've lost and lack. It was worth it to Jesus because he loves you, and you can know that for sure. You can know for sure that he loves you because of what it cost to restore you. That's what all miracles ultimately point to, that Jesus loves you. He loves you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your graciousness towards us. Father, you are sovereign even when we forget your sovereign, and yet in your sovereignty you have chosen to save us, to forgive our sins, to sanctify us, we pray, Lord, that you would continue that work in us, and that we would set our sights on the future restoration when all that's been lost or all that we lack will be restored. May that vision, may our faith in your restoring work sustain us. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen.